All Hallows by Walter de la Mare. Part 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Timothy Ferguson. All Hallows by Walter de la Mare. Part 2. They meant well, them who came to sea, full of talk and fine language, and went dumb away. I grant you they meant well, I allow that. They hummed and hawed, they smirked this, and they shrugged that, but at heart, sir, they were cowed, horrified, at a loss. Their very faces showed it, but if you ask me, for what purpose such doings are afoot, I have no answer, none. But now, supposing you yourself, sir, were one of them, with your repute at stake, and you were called to look in at a house, which the owners of it, and them who had it in trust, were disturbed by it being re-edificated and restored by some agency unknown to them. Supposing that, why, and he rapped with his knuckles on the table, being human and not one of us, mightn't you be going away too with your mouth shut because you didn't want to get talked about to your disadvantage, and wouldn't you at last dismiss the whole thing as a foolish delusion in the belief that living in out-of-the-way parts like these cuts a man off from the world, breeds maggots in the mind. I assure you, sir, they don't, not even Canon Ockham himself to the full, they don't believe even me, and yet, when they have their meetings of the chapter, they talk and wrangle round and round about nothing else. I can hear the other without a murmur. What God sends, I say, we humans deserve. We have laid ourselves open to it, but when you buttress up blindness and wickedness with downright folly, why then, sir, I sometimes fear for my own reason. He set his shoulders as square as his aged frame would permit, and with fingers clutching the lapels beneath his chin, he stood gazing out into the darkness through that narrow inward window. Ah, sir, he began again, I have not spent sixty years in this solitary place without paying heed to my own small wandering thoughts and instincts. Look at your newspapers, sir. What they call the Great War is over, and he'd be a brave man who would take an oath before heaven that that was only of human designing. And yet, what do we see around us? Nothing but strife and juggleries and hatred and contempt and discord wherever you'd look. I am no scholar, sir, but so far as my knowledge and experience carry me, we human beings are living day to day. What ought to have been done yesterday? And yet, at our loss, to know what's to be done tomorrow. And the church, sir. God forbid I should push my way into what does not concern me. And if you had told me half an hour gone by, you were a regular churchgoer, I shouldn't be pouring out all this to you now. It wouldn't be seemly. But being not so gives me confidence by merely listening. You can help me, sir, though you can't help us. Centuries ago, and in my humble judgment rightly, we broke away from the parent's stem and rooted ourselves in our own soil. But right or wrong, doesn't that of itself, I ask you, make us all the more open to attack from him who never wearies in going to and fro in the world, seeking whom he may devour? I am not wishing you to take sides, but a gentleman doesn't scoff. You don't find him jeering at what he doesn't rightly understand. He keeps his own counsel. And that's where, as I say, Canon Lee Sugar sets me doubting. He refuses to make allowances though up there in London things may look different. He gets his company there, and then for him 
The whole kaleidoscope changes if you take me. The old man scanned me in an instant, as if inquiring within himself whether, after all, I too might not be one of the outcasts. You see, sir, he went on dejectedly, I can bear what may be to come. I can, if need be, live on through what few years may yet remain to me and keep going, as they say, but only if I can be assured that my own inmost senses are not cheating and misleading me. Tell me the worst, and you will have done an old man a service he can never repay. Tell me, on the other hand, that I am merely groping along in a network of devilish delusions, sir. Well, in that case, I hope to be with my master, with Dr. Pomfrey, as soon as possible. We were all children once, and now there's nothing worse in this world for him to come into, in a manner of speaking. Oh, sir, I sometimes wonder if what we call childhood and growing up isn't a copy of the fate of our ancient forefathers. In the beginning of time there were fallen angels, we are told, but even if it weren't there in holy writ, we might have learnt it of our own fears and misgivings. I sometimes find myself looking at a young child with a short piece of awe, sir, knowing that within its mind is a scene of peace and paradise of which we older folk have no notion and which will fade away out of it, as life wears in, like the mere tabernacling of a dream. There was no trace of unction in his speech, though the phraseology might suggest it, and he smiled at me as if in reassurance. You see, sir, if I have any true notion of the matter, then I say heaven is dealing very gently with Dr. Pomfrey. He has gone back, and I take it his soul is elsewhere and at rest. He had come a pace or two nearer, and the candlelight now cast grotesque shadows in the hollows of his brows and cheekbones, silvering his long, scanty hair. His eyes dimming with age were fixed on mine, as if in incommunicable entreaty. I was at a loss to answer to him. He dropped his hands to his sides. The fact is, he looked cautiously about him, what I am now being so bold as to suggest though it's a familiar enough experience to me, may put you in actual physical danger. But then duty's duty and a deed of kindness from a stranger to a stranger, quite another matter. You seem to have come, if I may say so, in the nick of time. That was all. On the other hand, we can leave the building at once if you are so minded. In any case, we must be gone well before the dark sets in. Even mere human beings are best not disturbed at any night work they may be after. The dark brings recklessness. Conscience cannot see as clear in the dark. Besides, I once delayed too long myself. There is not much of day left even now. Though I see by the almanac there should be a slip of moon tonight, unless the sky is overclouded. All that I am meaning is that our all-in-all, all, so to speak, is the calm, untrammeled evidence of the outer senses, sir, and there comes a time when, well, one hesitates to trust one's own. I have read somewhere that it is only its setting, the shape, the line, the fold, the angle of the lid and so on, that gives its finer shades of meaning and significance to the human eye. Looking into his, even in that narrow and melancholy illumination, was like pondering over a grey, salt, desolate pool, such as sometimes neighbours the sea on a flat and dangerous coast. Perhaps if I had been a little less credulous or less exhausted, I should by now have begun to doubt this old creature's sanity, and yet, surely, at even the faintest contact with the insane, 
A sentinel in the mine sends up flares and warnings. The very landscape changes. There is a sense of insecurity. If, too, the characters inscribed by age and experience on a man's face can be evidence of goodness and simplicity, then my companion was safe enough. To trust in his sagacity was another matter. But then there was all Hallows itself to take into account. That first glimpse from my green headland of its lowering yet lovely walls had been strangely moving. There are buildings, almost as though they were once copies of originals, now half forgotten in the human mind, that have a singular influence on the imagination. Even now in this remote candlelit room, immured between its massive stones, the vast edifice seemed to be gently and furtively fretting its impression on my mind. I glanced again at the old man. He had turned aside, as if to leave me, unbiased to my own decision. How would a lifetime spent between these sombre walls have affected me, I wondered. Surely it would be an act of mere decency to indulge their worn-out hermit. He had appealed to me. If I were ten times more reluctant to follow him, I could hardly refuse, not at any rate without risking a retreat as humiliating as that of the architectural experts he had referred to, with my tail between my legs. I only wish I could hope to be of any real help. He turned about, his expression changed, as if at the coming of a light. Why then, sir, let us be gone at once. You are with me, sir. That was all I hoped and asked. Now there's no time to waste. He tilted his head to listen a moment, with that large, flat, shell-like ear of his which age alone seems to produce. Matches and candle, sir? He had lowered his voice to a whisper. But though we mustn't lose each other, you and me, I mean, not, I think, a naked light, what I would suggest, if you have no objection, is your kindly grasping my gown. There is a kind of streamer here, you see, as if made for the purpose. There will be a good deal of up and downing, but I know the building blindfold, and, as you might say, inch by inch. And now that the bell-ringers have given up ringing, it is more in my charge than ever. He stood back and looked at me with folded hands, a whimsical, childlike smile on his aged face. I sometimes think to myself, I'm like the sentry, sir, in that play of William Shakespeare's. I saw it, sir, years ago, on my only visit to London when I was a boy. If ever there was a villain, for all his fine talk and all, commend me to that ghost. I see him yet. Whisper though it was, a sort of chirrup had come into his voice, like that of a cricket in a baker's shop. I took tight hold of the velveted tag of his gown. He opened the door, pressed the box of safety matches into my hand, himself grasped the candlestick, and then blew out the light. We were instantly marooned in an impenetrable darkness. Now, sir, if you would kindly remove your walking shoes, he muttered close to my ear, we should proceed with less noise. I shan't hurry you, and please to tug at the streamer if you need attention. In a few minutes, the blackness will be less intense. As I stooped down to loose my shoelaces, I heard my heart thumping merrily away. It had been listening to our conversation, apparently. I slung my shoes round my neck, as I had often done as a boy, when going paddling, and we set out on our expedition. I have endured too often the nightmare of being lost and abandoned in the stony bowels of some strange and prodigious building, to take such an adventure lightly. I clung, I confess, desperately, tightly to my lifeline, and we groped steadily onward, my guide ever and again turning back to mutter warning or encouragement in my ear. 
Now I found myself steadily ascending, and then in a while feeling my way down flights of hollowly worn stone steps, and anon brushing along a gallery, or corkscrewing up a newel staircase so narrow that my shoulders all but touched the walls on either side. In spite of the sepulchral cold in these bowels of the cathedral, I was soon suffocatingly hot, and the effort to see became intolerably fatiguing. Once, to recover our breath, we paused opposite a slit in the thickness of the masonry, at which to breathe the tepid sweetness of the outer air. It was faint with the scent of wildflowers and cool of the sea. And presently after, at a barred window, high overhead, I caught a glimpse of the night's first stars. We then turned inward once more, ascending yet another spiral staircase, and now the intense darkness thinned a little, the groined roof above us becoming faintly discernible. A fresher air softly fanned my cheek. And then trembling fingers groped over my breast, and cold and bony clutched my own. Dead still, sir, here, if you please. So close sounded the whispered syllables. The voice might have been a messenger's within my own consciousness. Dead still here. There's a drop of some sixty or seventy feet a few paces on. I peered out across the abyss, conscious, as it seemed, of the huge, superincumbent weight of the noble fretted roof, only a small space now immediately above our heads. As we approached the edge of this stony precipice, the gloom paled a little, and I guessed that we must be standing in some coin of the southern transept, for what light the evening skies now afforded was clearer towards the right. On the other hand, it seemed that the northern windows opposite us were most of them boarded up or obscured in some fashion. Gazing out, I could detect scaffolding poles like knitting needles thrust out from the walls and a balloon-like spread of canvas above them. For the moment, my ear was haunted by what appeared to be the droning of an immense insect. But this presently ceased. I fancy it was internal only. You will understand, sir, breathed the old man close beside me and we stood grotesquely enough, hand in hand. The scaffolding over there has been in position a good many months now. It was put up when the last gentleman came down from London to inspect the fabric, and there it's been ever since. Now, sir, though I implore you to be cautious. I hardly needed warning. With one hand clutching my box of matches, the fingers of the other laced with my companions, I strained every sense, and yet... I could detect not the faintest stir or murmur under that widespreading roof, only a hush as profound as that which must reign in the royal chamber of the Pyramid of Cheops, faintly swirled in the labyrinths of my ear. How long we stayed in this position I cannot say, but minutes sometimes seem like hours, and then, without the slightest warning, I became aware of a peculiar and incessant vibration. It is impossible to give a name to it. It suggested the remote whirring of an enormous millstone, or that, though without definite pulsation, of revolving wings, or even the spinning of an immense top. In spite of his age, my companion apparently had ears as acute as mine. He clutched me tighter a full ten seconds before I myself became aware of this disturbance of the air. He pressed closer, do you see that, sir? I gazed and gazed and saw nothing. Indeed, even in what I had seemed to hear, I might have been deceived. Nothing is more treacherous in certain circumstances, except possibly the eye, than the ear. It magnifies, distorts, and may even invent. 
as instantaneously as i had become aware of it the murmur had ceased and then though i cannot be certain it seemed the dingy and voluminous spread of canvas over there had perceptibly trembled as if a huge cautious hand had been thrust out to draw it aside no time was given me to make sure the old man had hastily withdrawn me into the opening of the wall through which we had issued and we made no pause in our retreat until we had come again to the narrow slit of window which i have spoken of and could refresh ourselves with a less stagnant air we stood here resting a while well sir he inquired at last in the same flat muffled tones do you ever pass along here alone i whispered oh yes sir i make it a habit to be the last to leave and often the first to come but i am usually gone by this hour i looked close at the dim face in profile against the narrow oblong of night it is so difficult to be sure of oneself i said have you ever actually encountered anything near at hand i mean i keep a sharp lookout sir maybe they don't think me of enough importance to molest the last rat as they say but have you i might myself have been communicating with the phantasmal genius loci of all hallows our muffled voices this intense caution and secret listening the slight breathlessness as if any instant one's heart were ready for flight but have you well yes sir and in this very gallery they nearly had me sir but by good fortune there's a recess a little further on stored up with some old fragments of carving from the original building sixth century or so it said stone capitals heads and hands and the like i had my warning and managed to leap in there and conceal myself but only just in time indeed sir i confess i was in such a condition of terror and horror i turned my back you mean you heard but didn't look and something came yes sir i seemed to be reduced to no bigger than a child huddled up in that corner there was a sound like clanging metal but i don't think it was metal it drew near at a furious speed and passed me making a filthy gust of wind for some instants i couldn't breathe the air was gone and no other sound no other sir except out of the distance a noise like the sounding of a stupendous kind of gibberish a calling or so it seemed no human sound the air shook with it you see sir i wasn't myself of any consequence i take it unless a mere obstruction in the way but i've heard it said somewhere that the rarity of these happenings is only because it's a pain and a torment and not any sort of pleasure for these beings such apparitions sir good or bad to visit our outward world that's what i've heard said though i can go no further the time i'm telling you of was in the early winter november there was a dense sea fog over the valley i remember it eddied through that opening there into the candlelight like flowing milk i never light up now and if i may be forgiven the boast sir i seem to have almost forgotten how to be afraid after all in any walk of life a man can only do his best and if there weren't such opposition and hindrances in high places i should have done nothing to complain of what is anybody's life sir come past the gaiety of youth but marking time did you hear anything then sir his gentle monotonous mumbling ceased and we listened together but every ancient edifice has voices and soundings of its own there was nothing audible that i could put a name to only 
what seemed to be a faint perpetual stir or whir of grinding, such as, to one's overstimulated senses, the stablest of stones set on top of one another, with an ever so slightly varying weight and stress, might be likely to make perceptible in a world of matter, a world which, after all they say, is itself in unimaginably rapid rotation, and under the tyranny of time. No, I hear nothing, I answered, but please don't think I am doubting what you say, far from it. You must remember I am a stranger, and therefore the influence of the place cannot but be less apparent to me. And you have no help in this now? No, sir, not now, but even at the best of times we had small company hereabouts, and no money. Not for any substantial outlay, I mean, and not even the boldest suggests what's called a public appeal. It's a strange thing to me, sir, but whenever the newspapers get a hold of anything, they turn it into a byword and a sham. Yet how can they help themselves, with no beliefs to guide them, and nothing to stay their mouths except talk about what, for sheer human decency's sake, they daren't talk about? But then who am I to complain, and now, sir? He continued with a sigh of utter weariness. If you are sufficiently rested, would you perhaps follow me on to the roof? It's the last visit I make, though by rights perhaps I should take in what there is of the tower. But I'm too old now for that, clambering and climbing over naked beams, and the ladders are not so safe as they were. We had not far to go. The old man drew open a squat, heavily ironed door at the head of a flight of wooden stairs. It was latched but not bolted, and admitted us at once to the leaden roof of the building, and to the immense amphitheatre of evening. The last faint hues of sunset were fading in the west, and silver-bright spiker shared with the tilted crescent of the moon the serene, lagoon-like expanse of sky above the sea. Even at this height the air was audibly stirred with the low lullaby of the tide. The staircase by which we had come was surmounted by a flat penthouse roof about seven feet high. We edged softly along and paused once more to find ourselves now all but tete-a-tete with the gigantic figures that stood sentinel at the base of the buttresses to the unfinished tower. The tower was so unfinished, indeed, as to wear the appearance of the ruinous, besides which what appeared to be scars and strains as if a fire were detectable on some of its stones, reminding me of the legend, which years before I had chanced upon, that this stretch of coast had more than once been visited, centuries ago, by pillaging Norsemen. The night was unfathomably clear and still, on our left rose the conical bluff of the headland, crowned with the solitary grove of trees beneath which I had taken refuge from the blinding sunshine that very afternoon. Its grasses were now hoary with the faintest moonlight. Far to the right stretched the flat cold plain of the Atlantic, that enormous darkened looking-glass of space, only a distant lightship ever and again stealthily signalling to us with a lean phosphoric finger from its outermost reaches. The mere sense of that abysm of space its waste powdered with the stars of the Milky Way, the mere presence of the stony Leviathan on whose back we two humans now stood, dwarfed into insignificance beside these gesturing images of stone, were enough of themselves to excite the imagination. And whether matter-of-fact or pure delusion, this old verger's insinuations that the cathedral was now menaced by some inconceivable danger and assault had set my nerves on edge. My feet were numb as the lead they stood upon, while the tips of my fingers tingled, as if a powerful electric discharge were coursing through my body. We moved gently on, the spare shape of the old man a few steps ahead, peering cautiously to right and left of him as we advanced. Once with a hasty gesture, he drew me back and fixed his eyes for a full minute on a figure, at two removes, which was silhouetted 
at that moment, against the starry emptiness. A forbidding thing enough, viewed in this vague luminosity, which seemed, in spite of the unmoving stare that I fixed on it, to be perceptibly stirring on its wind-worn pedestal. But no. All's well, the old man mutely signed to me, as we pushed on. Slowly and cautiously, indeed, I had time to notice in passing that this particular figure held stretched in its right hand a bent bow and was crowned with a high, weather-worn stone coronet. One and all were frigid company. At last we completed our circuit of the tower, had come back to the place we had set out from, and stood eyeing one another like two conspirators in the clear dusk. Maybe there was a tinge of incredulity in my face. "'No, sir,' murmured the old man. "'I expected no other. The night is uncommonly quiet. I noticed that before. They seem to leave us at peace on nights of quiet. We must turn in again and be getting home.' Until that moment I had thought no more of where I was to sleep or to get food, nor had even realised how famished with hunger I was. Nevertheless, the notion of fumbling down again out of the open air into the narrow inward blackness of the walls from which we had just issued was singularly uninviting. Across these wide flat stretches of roof there was at least space for flight, and there were recesses for concealment. To gain a moment's respite, I inquired if I should have much difficulty in getting a bed in the village. As I had hoped, the old man himself offered me hospitality. I thanked him, but still hesitated to follow, for at that moment I was trying to discover what peculiar effect of dusk and darkness, a moment before, had deceived me into the belief that some small animal, a dog, a spaniel, I should have guessed, had suddenly and surreptitiously taken cover behind the stone buttress nearby. But that apparently had been a mere illusion. The creature, whatever it may be, was no barker at any rate, nothing stirred now, and my companion seemed to have noticed nothing amiss. "'You were saying,' I pressed him, that when repairs, restorations of the building were in contemplation, even the experts were perplexed by what they discovered? What did they actually say? Say, sir? Our voices sounded as small and meaningless up here as those of grasshoppers in a noonday meadow. Examine that balustrade which you are leaning against at this minute. Look at that gnawing and fretting, that furrowing above the lead. All that is honest wear and tear, constant weathering of the mere elements, sir. Rain and wind and snow and frost. That's your honest natura work, sir. But now compare it, if you please, with the St. Mark here. And remember, sir, these images were intended to be part and parcel of the fabric, as you might say. Sentries on a castle, symbols, you understand. I stooped close under the huge grey creature of stone until my eyes were scarcely more than six inches from its pedestal, and unless the moon deceived me, I confess I could not find the slightest trace of fret or friction. Far from it. The stone had been grotesquely decorated in low relief with a gaping crocodile, a two-headed crocodile, and the angles, nubs, and undulations of the creature were cut as sharp as with a knife in cheese. I drew back. Now, cast your glance upwards, sir. Is that what you would call a saintly shape and gesture? What I took to represent an eagle was perched on the image's lifted wrist, but lowering and vulture-like. The head of the figure was poised at an angle of defiance, the ears unnaturally high up on the skull, the lean right forearm extended with pointing forefinger as if in derision. Its stony gaze was fixed upon the stars, its whole aspect 
was undeniably sinister and intimidating. The faintest puff of milk-warm air from over the sea stirred my cheek. I drew aside. Aye, sir, and so with one or two of the rest of them, the old man commented as he watched me. There are other wills than the Almighty's. At this, the pent-up excitement within me broke bounds. This nebulous, insinuatory talk. I all but lost my temper. I can't, for the life of me, understand what you are saying. I exclaimed in a voice that astonished me with its shrill volume of sound in that intense, lofty quiet. One doesn't repair in order to destroy. The old man met me without flinching. No, sir, you say so. And why not? Are there not two kinds of change in this world, a building up and a breaking down? To give strength and endurance for evil or misguided purposes, would that be time wasted if such was your aim? Why, sir, isn't that even true of the human mind and heart? We here are on the outskirts, I grant, but where would you expect the activity to show itself unless in the outer defences? An institution may be beyond dying, sir, it may be being restored for a worse destruction, and a hundred trumpeting voices would make no difference when the faith and life within is tottering to its fall. Somehow, this muddle of metaphors reassured me. Obviously, the old man's wits had worn a little thin. He was the victim of an intelligible but monstrous hallucination. And yet, you are taking it for granted, I expostulated, that if what you say is true, a stranger could be of the slightest help. A visitor, mind you, who hasn't been inside the doors of a church except in search of what is old and gone for years. The old man lay a trembling hand upon my sleeve, the folly of it with my shoes hanging like ludicrous millstones round my neck. If you please, sir, he pleaded, have a little patience with me. I'm preaching at nobody. I'm not even hinting that them outside the fold, circumstantially speaking, aren't of the flock. All in good time, sir. The Almighty's time. Maybe with all due respect. It's from them within we have the most to fear. And indeed, sir, believe an old man. I could never express the gratitude I feel. You have given me the occasion to unbosom myself, to make a clean breast, as they say. All Hallows is my earthly home, and, well, let us say no more. You couldn't help me, except only by your presence here. God alone knows who can. At that instant, a dull, enormous rumble reverberated from within the building as if a huge boulder or block of stone had been shifted or dislodged in the fabric, a peculiar grinding, nerve-wracking sound, and, for the fraction of a second, the flags on which we stood seemed to tremble beneath our feet. The fingers tightened on my arm. "'Come, sir, keep close. We must be gone at once,' the quavering old voice whispered. "'We have stayed too long.' But we emerged into the night at last without mishap. The little western door, above which the grinning head had welcomed me on my arrival, admitted us to terra firma again, and we made our way up a deeply sandy track, bordered by clumps of herb agrimony and fennel and hemlock, with vipers bugloss and sea poppy blooming in the gentle dusk of night at our feet. We turned when we reached the summit of the sandy incline and looked back. All hallows, vague and enormous, lay beneath us in its hollow, resembling some natural prehistoric outcrop of that sea-worn rock-bound coast but strangely human and saturnine the air was mild as milk a pool of faintest sweetness gorse bracken heather and not a rumour disturbed its calm 
except only the furtive and stentorious sighings of the tide. But far out to sea and beneath the horizon, some of the lightnings were now in idle play, flickering into the sky like the unfolding of a signal, planet to planet, then gone. That alone, and perhaps too this feeble moonlight, glinting on the ancient glass, may have accounted for the faint vitreous glare that seemed ever and again to glitter across the windows of the northern transept far beneath. And yet how easily deceived is the imagination. This old man's talk still echoing in my ear, I could have vowed. This was no reflection but the glow of some light, shining fitfully from within outwards. The old man paused beside a flowering bush of fuchsia at the wicker gate leading into his small square of country garden. You'll forgive me, sir, for mentioning it, but I make it a rule as far as possible to leave all my troubles and misgivings outside when I come home. My daughter is a widow and not long in that sad condition, so I keep as happy a face as I can on things, and yet, well, sir, sometimes I wonder if, if a personal sacrifice isn't incumbent on them that have their object most at heart. I'd go out myself very willingly, sir, I can assure you. If there was any certainty in my mind, it would serve the cause. It would be little to me if... He made no attempt to complete the sentence. On my way to bed that night, the old man led me on tiptoe to show me his grandson. His daughter watched me intently as I stooped over to the child's cot, with that bird-like solicitude which all mothers show in the presence of a stranger. Her small son was of that fairness which almost suggests the unreal. He had flung back his bedclothes as if innocence in this world needed no covering or defence, and lay at ease, the dews of sleep on lip, cheek, and forehead. He was breathing so quietly that not the least movement of shoulder or narrow breast was perceptible. "'The lovely thing,' I muttered, staring at him. "'Where is he now, I wonder?' His mother lifted her face and smiled at me with a drowsy, ecstatic happiness, then sighed. And from out of the distance there came the first prolonged whisper of a wind from over the sea. It was eleven by my watch. The storm after the long heat of the day seemed to be drifting inland. But All Hallows, apparently, had forgotten to wind its clock. End of All Hallows, Part 2 Recording by Timothy Ferguson, Gold Coast, Australia